listening to The Nature Between Us. My name is Tessa and I'm your host. This podcast is produced on the land of the Bidjigal and Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. Today I'm speaking with Tashiko King, a proud Kolkolog woman from the island of Masig in Zenedith Kess, more broadly known as the Torres Strait Islands. She's the campaigns director at SeedMob, an organiser for the Our Islands, Our Home campaign, and an all-round legend who is passionate about sharing culture, amplifying social inequality, and advocating for the rights of First Nations people. Tish is currently based in Nam, but she's bounced around a bit throughout her interesting life. We get chatting about her journey to studying marine biology, how she went from working for a mining company to fighting gas exploration in the NT, her experience of attending COP26 last year, and the powerful First Nations-led campaigns she's currently fighting for. Enjoy. Tish, it's so great to have you on the pod today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Tessa. So happy to be here having a yarn with you today. So where are you calling in from today, firstly? I'm calling here um, on Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Kinship. And so I would like to acknowledge the country that I'm on and would like to do that um, through beautiful language. And so Kulaiki Nailak Esapoiban, Nalman Koe Agath, Nud Muru Zapu Aimithin. Alak nalpunka poiban. Kapu bailud mitamuka murabuai. A mura mabugal nu. Nuzunal tish. Nai kalkalag masignu napa kalkagal zenadith kesnu eso. And so just to translate that for everyone out there tuning in today is that I firstly would like to give thanks to our Heavenly Father for his blessings upon us and good morning to all of the families and the peoples of this land, which I am on. My name is Tish. I am a Kalkalug woman from the island of Masig, Kalkagal Nation, which is a central island group of Zenith Kes, known commonly to everyone as the Torres Strait Islands. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Kulin kinship and ask their ancestors to guide us on this beautiful yarn today. I acknowledge all First Peoples on this land and celebrate their enduring connections to country, knowledge and stories and and extend that respects to anyone, any mob out there tuning in um, here today. Awesome. That was so beautiful. Thanks, Tish. Um, So I wanted to start our yarn today back in your early career, because you've had such an incredible journey and a really interesting life with what seems like a lot of really big, pivotal moments. Can you talk me through how you went from living in a mining town and going to a boarding school, which assumably wasn't nearby the ocean, to studying marine biology? I grew up in Cape York, Queensland, in a place called Weeper on Ulna Country, surrounded with um, many different traditional owner groups. And they, it, it is a mining town where they mine the resource bauxite. And so I guess for most people, you know, that live in regional towns and small communities, there's more opportunities in bigger towns and where the work sort of is. And so naturally, my family moved to where those opportunities away from the islands and sort of um, was raised on that country and really actually I actually feel really deeply connected there and super appreciate um, 
you know, the diverse systems up there. Because it's, uh, if you ever get a chance to go through Cape York, so beautiful. But sort of firsthand experience actually saw, um, you know, little things change from my everyday life. As a young kid, you know, things were still expensive and especially in regional towns, um, you know, the price for food is absorbent, borderline robbery. And so we depend a lot on hunting and, um, you know, going fishing and, you know, going through the mangroves and catching crabs. And so it was through this and through those weekends and through those times together with family that I actually saw like through the years the next year would actually just have less fish um we weren't seeing the same fish uh, you know that I liked I was like "Mm, oh where's that tasty one (laughs) I was like why haven't we had that and mom was like oh they're not they don't like you and you're like oh okay (laughs) (laughs) they're hiding from you (laughs) exactly but you know I think to really illustrate, um, I guess, the picture with that is that the beaches we would go to and the mangroves were sort of in this inlet that had the uh, shiploader in from the mines. And so naturally it had created, um, you know, deeper dredging um, area for it to go through. But, you know, through that system shifted, especially those sort of sand um, ecosystems that, you know, had your mud crabs and your skin is that led onto the mud flats into the mangroves that create shelter for the birds and through that and through the runoff from the sites we saw the shifting of like <clears throat> like well the water pollution it was coming out red and you could see the thin layer of oil sitting on you know the water and you're just like oh yuck you know you know you can't catch fish there go to cleaner water but we saw more of those happening and then coming into sort of those local areas and so you know it sort of really sparked and really activated my I guess passion for knowledge of understanding the why and the how and if you get told as a parent to like pick up your rubbish why aren't other people being told to you know take accountability for their pollution and so I think you know and this is a testament to my incredible mother and my auntie who really sort of I think saw the potential in in me and really worked hard to you know fund a school that really was beyond their scope that they didn't know that where they were sending me you know to have the opportunities for further education and because it was also during that time and that transition then that I actually didn't know that the stolen generation did happened. I had never seen a white Aboriginal person before in my life because everyone around me was, every mob, you know, still had sort of, you know, the darker complexion, even sort of with blue eyes I actually didn't know I thought oh it's like oh that's a different tribe that's all good but didn't realize that through that you know assimilation and through that history that how they became to lose that you know that part um, of them and so it, it was a mind blown things just was like what is happening and so going to boarding school and a Catholic boarding school was really incredible. Um, it was really a life-changing. Um, I was definitely to kid that ran barefoot on bauxite. <laughs> going into having to wear school shoes and socks. I was like... <laughs> 
And like, I really felt that like, I guess it's like a classic example of modern like colonialism. Like, <laughs> in a good way, like, oh, like I, well, in a good way. I, I, I mean it in a way that sort of like, you know, what it did then do was like really um, help sort of nurture me in my learnings to be able to find my voice and have the self-determination to speak up. I joined the school environmental committee and, you know, started shifting to like taking a, a reusable cup and a reusable straw, but also not acknowledging like how big that impact was then. I just thought these are just little things for myself. That's amazing. You were doing that in school? Yeah, and it, like it, it was really crazy because I guess a lot of people weren't doing it then. So even with my family too, I was just, you know, labeled as like, oh, Tish, that real hippie looking girl over there. <laughs> Such a compliment though. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> and so, you know, through those experiences, like after school, I started to say yes. The fact that I didn't think I would ever make it out of, you know, out of community and to have the opportunities that cultivated friendships that I'm still friends with today, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it paved opportunities for my younger sisters to go there where teachers you know there was a massive shift for more first nations people to go to that school after high school and a couple of years out before I went back into studies I sort of went overseas I was a person that lived in a place for six months and I picked up and left I sort of you know everything I owned was on my backpack and I just had this yearning to learn and through that I always found deep connections along the way with the ocean. And then I think it was in 2011 or maybe earlier, now I'm having a mind blank of timeframes, but there was a massive oil spill in Southeast Queensland off the Great Sandy Islands that um, really impacted Morton Island, Stradbroke Island along the Sunshine Coast. And that oil spill was really confronting. And so through my experiences, I'd been on the resort before and so sort of linked up to be able to, you know, get on the ground and start picking up our marine animals that had come in these systems that, you know, for, for shelter. In the Morton Bay, we have, you know, the second largest to the Torres Straits, but the seagrass community for dugons. We have such marine diverse life there. And so to see that and having connections through there after school, that I felt really deeply sad about that. And so after that experience, I actually signed up to do ocean science at uni. And so it really just really connected Western science because what we saw was that this disintegration of the seagrasses impacted those populations of dugons. And so they migrated. The dugon is my totem. And so for me, my, my, my totem didn't have a food source and was going hungry. And so I felt this pain inside of me that was like, I, how do I do this? Like, how do I have to help? And I think I acknowledge that you know, I have an opportunity to go and learn more 
um, compared to, you know, other other First Nations people, especially island people. So I'm going to go because the challenge that we have, right, is that there are not enough Indigenous people speaking for their country in the research and sharing that story. Mm. And so it like sparked that I wanted to do research, but my incredible mentor at um, CSIRO in the Oceans and Atmosphere team, Dr. Tim Skies, he said, and I'm sure he would he would appreciate it when I tell him this. He would he said go and experience other industries first because research takes you know a lot of your time and it becomes your life, right? And I was like, okay, cool. And you know, so it went. It took me back up to Cape York, where I, which was like back in 2018, and I honestly dead set because I won't name companies neutral space but the mine that was operating there had spilt eight tons of their mineral in the first week of their operating week and nothing happened and I know this for the fact that I was living with the environmental officer and I was and it sort of was like oh my gosh I just thought who like who's accountable for that that's actually why we can't catch fish yeah totally that's why we can't hunt and that you know it costs ten dollars for a two liter you know milk that it costs like for a bar of like home brand soap five dollars it's like what more can you take from these people not only have you taken their land and this you know systemic challenges that we have in communities you've also taken their their resources their connection to country them practicing culture away from them and you know some of them are their totems the moities and so it was really actually confronting that I actually started going into anaphylactic shock um, every week and had to start carrying an EpiPen because I was so anxious of having to be in the rooms with managers that could actually really shift and make and implement things but wouldn't. Right oh is this when you were working for the company? Yeah, yeah. So so interesting that that I when I saw that because I was reading about you on Wikipedia, I was like, she worked for a mining company. That's like in the the devil's lair in a way. Literally. (laughs) And I guess I didn't realize that I was in the devil's lair because from my experiences of like it creates jobs. And then I understood more than it's also about that just transition. Mm, and why totally. we sort of create clean jobs that friends of mine can use their trade still in that industry for sure yeah and so but yeah I sort of was just like it was sort of really horrific and I would go into the rooms with managers and people that were quite high up in that space I would have meetings with CEOs of other corporations because I was invited into roundtables and and because of Chatham House rules and not to go into those conversations, but uh, human rights was not a priority. Mm. And so it really just activated something else in my mind of like going, okay, that's wrong. That's really wrong. I was just like, oh, yeah, no. I'm going to fight against that. Yeah. And so I really think it's a good segue into like seed and getting into seed mob. But during my studies actually at uni, I had gone to a seed event and it was the 2017 power shift where about 300 young mob from across the nation came together. And so it was so incredible. And I hope there are young mob out there hearing this. Uh, that's what actually drew the connection of the um, why we talk about climate justice 
and like that it's actually about first nations justice because there's a deeper root to how we actually got here in the first place mm. and so you know it really sort of decolonized my mind too as well of like that was that missing link like I knew it in my heart and I felt it but of like the sense of wow we got here because I guess you know taking land and wrecking it up for for profit mm-hmm. and that goes beyond this 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 country's existence mm. political existence mm. um and so you know it's why I actually feel deeply passionate about seed mob it's been probably a 360 circle but here I am and it's I think that's what I feel passionate about through my experiences through that and being able to like you said be in the devil's lair and actually see what happens and it actually I what I also identified is that it's like the blue-collared working person too is gets left behind for sure yeah it really made me actually understand and really connect with that and really want to like really drive and support that you know we you know while we do need resources to get to the next level we need to also bring those people along with clean jobs as we do that. Mm, Yeah. It's not a matter of like demonizing the mining industry, because like you said, 99% of the people involved are people who live in the area who need a job. And that is a hundred percent valid. You know, I, I get it. Everyone needs to work. Like you need money. That's how it goes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Obviously there's the 1% at the very top of the triangle that owns the whole company (laughs) that are not the most caring people towards our environment, but yeah. So, but let's talk about seed because you've mentioned it a bit and I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard of seed because, you know, it's just such an awesome organization, but for those that haven't, can you briefly talk us through who seed are and what they're fighting for and some of the key campaigns that you're directing as the campaign director there? Yeah, obviously people knowing Seed Mob is a testament to all the many Seed Mob, young mob out there who have been a part of Seed. And that is like so deadly to hear that. But for those folks who actually don't know, um, Seed Mob are Australia's first and only youth-led Indigenous climate network. And we've been building a movement of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to come together and have those meaningful conversations of, you know, how it impacts us all and why we fight for climate justice and so just to share actually you know a little bit um, about the you know work that CMOB does is that they support traditional owners and frontline communities from fracking especially in the NT area Beedaloo Basin because right now the majority of the Northern Territory is under oil and gas exploration licenses Uh, with remote Aboriginal communities on the front lines of these dangerous, unconventional fossil fuel experiments. And so since 2015, SEED has played a critical role in educating, connecting, supporting and organising remote communities across the Northern Territory to lead the campaign to ban dangerous gas fracking and protect land, water, culture and climate. We are seeing these gas corporations rushing ahead to fast track plans for fracking. And it's actually being supported from our government and they are disregarding the rights of First Nations people to free prior and informed consent in regards to to decisions that actually affect their lands and waters. 
in the last you know couple of years we've seen a lot of public money from our federal budget go towards Beetaloo drilling programs, fracking in the NT, or they won't use it in that sort of words. I mean, recently last week, key regional hubs in the NT. Mm. I mean, you sort of want to... Smells fishy. It does smell fishy, right? And also fracking, it's it, it's the, the process of fracking is like drilling into the earth's core and then pumping chemical water. So that also disturbs all of the water sources in the whole area as well. That is exactly right. Um, and that's actually why we we have an incredible film, Water is Life, um, that is accessible to everyone out there to really share those stories on the front lines. And so for communities, for people that actually depend on water, and, and that's not just First Nations people, regional towns, farming areas, like anywhere, like water is life. And, and this summer, we saw record temperatures hit in some of these regional areas that is our only source of life and it means everything it's the lungs of our land of our country and so I think that's like a testament to those traditional owners that have been on the front lines is that we've been supporting to delay fracking in the Northern Territory for as long as possible to eventually secure, um, you know, a permanent territory-wide ban. Aboriginal communities across the Northern Territory have been calling for a ban of dangerous gas fracking for over a decade. So this is like, this has been going on for so long, but it's only, I think, under this government that we've really heard gas be I guess a part of the conversation Mm. and you know because of gas-led recovery and gas is like such a funny like sneaky fossil fuel because it's called it's presented as natural gas it's like somehow been marketed in a way that's like oh wait that's a fossil fuel too like what exactly when natural uses has a sort of positive impact or you get that connection to it but Whilst like exploration wells have been approved and we continue to see that and the nepotism through our current government and corporations, like fracking operations actually have begun. The long-term economic viability of oil and gas production in the Beetaloo and MacArthur Basin is still yet to be proven. And, you know, obviously there's larger conversations and I'm sure you will speak to this, but like there's also the conversations of the technology that's going to sequester these emissions Mm. that it creates that are not yet proven as well. And these gas companies, they're hungry for extraction, but it's the sustained pressure and powerful resistance from, you know, these frontline communities that has led and will continue to hold them off. And so each year, each month, gosh, each week, I'm like, (laughs) that companies, you know, hold back from moving into that production phase. You know, we do draw closer to, uh, to winning what is one of the most critical campaigns for climate justice and land rights in this country. Yeah. So cool to hear how the resistance is, it's holding strong. Like that is so impressive to be up against. I mean, not just our government, but those mining companies, like they are ruthless and they want, like you said, they are hungry to explore. And yeah, I'm so like buoyed by hearing that. I do want to shout out to the Anti Protect Country Alliance that, you know, has like incredible members from Lock the Gate and Karina Nolan, who, you know, heads Original Power. There is some deadly, really like-minded people that have, have really come together and mm. worked together. So I do want to acknowledge the other people's work out there. Awesome. 
I just want to take a moment to tell you about an epic giveaway that I'm running this season thanks to the pod's generous supporters, For Purpose Recycling, Camp Cove Swim and Spooked Kook Surfboards, all of which put the environment at the forefront of their operations while making groovy things that we can enjoy or win in this case. So if you're wanting a sustainable soft top surfboard, a swimsuit gift voucher and a recycled plastic belt, then all you have to do is subscribe to the pod, leave a review and follow all of our Insta accounts. A winner will be picked at random by the end of season two. Well, maybe we can move on to talking about how C took you over to Glasgow for COP26 because that is just so cool to me to have that opportunity to travel mid-pandemic, which is crazy enough in itself, to kind of the mecca of climate advocacy and climate action with all of the world leaders um, and everyone looking on to kind of see what's going to be the outcome of this big convention and you got to go. So I'm so excited to hear about that. Firstly, for the listeners who are tuning in who maybe are like, oh, COP26, I heard someone talking about that once, but I'm not too sure what it is. Can you tell us briefly what is COP26 and then just go on to just tell me how your experience was there, what you were going in with the goal of doing and how was it, like what were your takeaways? Yeah, um, folks out there, COP26 is an annual sort of meeting that gathers world leaders together for conference of the parties that come together for the United Nations Climate Change Conference. And 26 indicates the amount of conferences we've had. And when I say parties, that refers to 197 nations that agreed to an environmental pact within the United Nations Framework Convention. And they've started that meeting since... 1992. Yeah, that's 26 years. Um, <laughs> Good math. <laughs> um, and so an importance of this gathering is to really fundamentally come together and really make those parties, those nations accountable and have critical conversations. But what this, um, why this gathering was a, a bit critical in conversation is because since COP21, the Paris Agreement, 197 parties have been in negotiations for five years to what they, how they were going to reduce their emissions. And so that's what came out of Paris Agreement, um, you know, was that, you know, we want all parties to make ambitious targets to reduce global emissions by 1.5, but no nations actually hadn't set anything in stone. And so for five years of that, those negotiations, it was like, wow, we could have made changes then. We could have had active shifts during that time. And so, especially for Indigenous communities globally that contribute the least to the world's emissions, and if not anything, get impacted first and worse, and we're disproportionately affected. And that's through in like our voices, through the systems, and through even spaces like this. To me, like the COP conference is a mecca of like, wow, the people that need to be there are usually there. To me, I thought like the greats, like David Attenborough. (laughs) (laughs) Was he there? (laughs) Like they were. And so, you know, these scientists that inspired my mind through that education and their research and their, like their knowledge, I was like, felt wide eyed, like really naive, like did not know what to expect. 
Well, day one was very challenging for that. But (laughs) I think just really important to acknowledge that it was really incredible how we sort of came around. It was at the end of last year. I only found out a week beforehand. And I think importantly to acknowledge is that through the Indigenous Peoples Organization, they sort of endorsed Seed Mob and our Islander Home campaign to take the ticket over there. And Ideally, we would have liked to have sent a traditional owner or a Torres Strait claimant to the campaigns, but through this, uh, the landscape, it was still unsafe and uncertain Mm. through COVID challenges. So I feel very privileged to have gone. But first day, holy moly, macaroni. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Okay. Everyone saw the pictures. Yeah. Did you see the Santos exhibition? (laughs) Like, I just want to know, did you touch that strange thing like no actually to be quite honest which I'm glad I didn't in a way so that I wasn't contaminated by exactly but I also wish I sort of felt uh, well we don't endorse violence um but I was just like really just wanted to push it away (laughs) just like get out your pen and do a little tag on it somewhere exactly but honestly like you said, like it was really incredible because, you know, there's a lot going in there, like what people are doing to really shift on a na- like international level. And I've never been sort of in the UN spaces before as well. So this was just all quite new learning about you can't put any like, um, you know, have plain sort of shirt, no flags, no sort of like slogans oh, wow. or anything quite strict because it's a world of its own had to do like about you know every morning up at six doing at five o'clock to register to do a COVID test because you couldn't go in without getting the approval and then I think that as anything when a mass amount of people use something the system breaks down and For so sure. it was sort of like you know the, it was like rush getting into like the planaries where the badges that you could have as an observer you actually couldn't get into those rooms they said COVID um, um, was that is, kind of like a bit of a blanket excuse for in my mind I feel like that was a tactic to keep people out of the room that advocate against mm. but I will draw I'll let people draw that their own conclusions mm-hmm. and that first day going in was only seeing the Santos carbon and capture storage technology diagram that didn't actually show you the transparency of how it would really work and then on top of it was just the Australian way 2050 emissions you know targets from the LMP that they just released a week before going to COP that is only 20 pages Um, and so Mm. I was like okay it took me by surprise because I was like okay is this it like hang on is there something else because you walk a meter away, gosh, you just turn around. The rest of the pavilion is lit up of just like every party's plan of how they're going to, like in the next 10 years, what they're going to phase out and what their goals are and how they're going to do it. Then it was their projection job by 2040 and then by 2050. And it was actually really incredible to see um, the creativity and like the necessary steps that countries, parties were doing to really be a part of reducing their emissions. Like they came prepared, you know, they came ready to have yarns. Yeah, yeah. They came with food. <laughs> like yeah, I was yeah, really yeah. They showed up with a platter. 
It's exactly. their best foot forward. And we didn't even have posters. We didn't have like mm. being wide-eyed and not knowing to what to expect with the goals of just making really beautiful connections with Indigenous people, joining the Indigenous caucus and continuing to learn from our knowledge holders. I went in and that first day really tore my heart and I just... I don't know what to, I guess, say. Like, I got really sad. And then I saw Uncle Pastor Ray Minikin, who was the representative of from the Indigenous Peoples Organization, who had his beautiful Akubra hat on with all his badges in it, wearing his proud shirt that represented like, his Aboriginality and Torres Strait Islander people. And it was really heartbreaking to see his confusion, to see like for first nations people it's a sign of disrespect and i mean in it in a way where it's just like they should not be confronted to see that kind of thing or continue to see it and then then be no explanation and no one to have a yarn with him about it so it was just the santos exhibition and like no one there to like chat it'd be like leaving if you're going into like a bookstore and like the the book of the week is just there and and then that's it like then there's just like books around but in our case, there was just nothing around. What a strange situation. It was quite like, it was kind of ominous. Yeah, I can imagine. But then also then like going, oh, let's, it got to that disappointing factor straight away. Cause then it's like, okay, I'm now disappointed, embarrassed. Yeah, like, yeah. Like I, you know, that I come from, I'm First Nations to this country and this is what, this is how you're representing the people. Mm. Like this is, oh my gosh. Um, so how did you respond to that? Was it, you know, is, is COP26 the kind of place where like, could you go and seek out your own conversations? Could, or was it still quite formal? Because you said there's kind of like the UN COP and then there's like the side COP. I'm like, maybe the side COP is the more not fun because, you know, they're to fight climate action. But like, it seems like there's kind of, you know, this very separate place where freedom of speech is not as easy. And then this side spot, maybe a little bit more, a place where you can express um, what you're fighting for. It definitely was like that. And the incredible side pop-ups and what was happening were really super incredible. And it's like really created a different sort of feeling there and you could have more critical conversations. One thing that I took out of it and was just really incredible is that the Indigenous Pavilion set up a youth space for the first time where Indigenous people from different nations, like Swami from the Amazonia, from Peru, they actually all brought a young person with them. And I think that was like where then just sharing of like being a part of that space is like really important. The responsibilities that we're inheriting and that why we must continue this fight and that already that young people are already having to be in these spaces and have to be confronted in these spaces because it's something that we will you know, we must continue to to do um, and to advocate. But it was really incredible because it was the first year that we had an Indigenous caucus. And so learning from those that have been to COP uh, beforehand and advocated, it's really, again, important to acknowledge that we couldn't actually, Indigenous people probably could not have been there. The amounts of Indigenous people could not have been there if it wasn't for the many people beforehand who have always gone there because we made up which is so incredible, the second largest delegation to the fossil fuel lobbyists, which actually goes to show 
why it's important that First Nations voices and people are actually there in those spaces because we have fossil fuel lobbyists. That's the largest delegation at a climate conference. That is blowing my mind. How did I not hear it like that was not publicized? I, I That is crazy, Tish. I think it's really important, like what I took away, that it is really important for First Nations people to be in that space. And it's so important to be able to then continue to learn as well. Like I found really helpful that just the power of storytelling and how you speak, shifting that deficit language and just sharing experiences continues to shift the hearts and minds, you know, walking away from it. It was incredible. It was amazing. And it was a bucket list experience to know that I could travel around the globe and be able to stand with other First Nations people across the globe together is one of the best things. Very cool. So I want to move into talking about the Our Island, Our Home campaign. But before we talk about the campaign, I just want to ask, like, what is it like in the Torres Strait Islands? Wow. Well, for, for a fun fact, there's 150 islands with 18, 17, 18 island communities. And so... Each of that is actually sort of split up into different regions and it's sort of going with like their geological, uh, how they're sort of split. So like some have more rocky headland, more coral cay, sandy islands, more low-lying. And so through all of those different areas, like imagine Bora Bora across the Caribbean, across like the Maldives, across like, like the greatest, clearest blue water that you've ever seen in the world. Wow. Um, honestly, like it's just a beautiful part of the Pacific Ocean. It's just so untouched and so diverse, um, filled with beautiful people, coconut trees, and just a really beautiful, simple island life. It sounds like a marine biologist's dream spot. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's and so I, perfect. And I shared that I come from the island of Musik, which in English is York Island. And that is part of the Kolkogol Nation, which is the central island group. And that group is surrounded by, it's like sandy Coral Cay Islands, surrounded by these restructures. So we have beautiful, like just marine life in that area. Wow. So awesome. It's definitely on my bucket list. But aside from its beauty and all of these incredible things, it is also experiencing some of the worst effects of climate change. And that is where the Our Island, Our Home campaign comes in. Um, So I'd love to hear what's happening up there in terms of climate change. Who are the Our Island, Our Home campaigners and what are you guys fighting for? Yeah, look, I think it's really um, pivotal and and thank you so much for actually creating space and being able to share. Um, Our Islands, Our Home is this incredible campaign that is led by island people themselves. We had eight claimants called the Torres Strait Eight, hashtag that, Um, and they've brought a human rights complaint against the Australian federal government to the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations over the government's inaction on climate change because Torres Strait Islanders are on the front lines of the climate crisis and if urgent action in the next seven years doesn't happen, that it can be irreversible. And this 
urgent action is needed to ensure that Torres Strait Islander people can remain on their islands. Right now, king tides, erosion, inundation, and coral bleaching are threatening the homes of cultures of Torres Strait Islander people, while the Australian government refuses to address the climate crisis. And for me, like, it's been an incredible experience because two summers ago when we had the bushfires, it really, like, reminded the spark of, you know, the importance of country. Like, I already know that, but seeing that devastation just only makes you want to go and appreciate what you still have. And so I had the opportunity to go up and walk on my island home after 20 years Wow! with my big Bella Yesse. And I saw with my own eyes, the ship changes from a, from a kid that I just thought, wow, this is happening in our lifetime. We're the first generation to really feel and see it. Mm. And, and I just was just really devastated and devastated for my, for my Bella Yesse, because he then continued to go into our burial grounds where I picked up the bones of my ancestor, my matriarch, who was scattered all over the ground. And it was really frightening from that, like, you know, that erosion ripping apart our burial grounds and to have that exposed. Because that's right by the coast? Well, because we're a small island, uh, you know, just uh, our oceans have always been able to shift with the seasons and, uh, and, you know, naturally as a sand island, it morphs. But, you know, in the last sort of, you know, decade, there's just been, and especially in the last five years, they've just been incredible amounts of shifts where we can't tell our seasonal cues anymore because there's so like what's driving the ocean our ocean is angry Mm. she's she's hurting and she doesn't know how to act and so she's not you know she when she provides us food sometimes out of season she's not providing us that food anymore um and she's angry and as an impact our, our burial grounds are being impacted and like these are our, this is our history. For me, this is my history that I still continue to learn. And I'm the oldest in my in um in my generation. And so I have so many young brothers and sisters and cousin brothers and sisters that still need to, we still need to learn. And our like it's like our future is being rubbed away from us. Yeah. And for a lot of Torres Strait Islanders, they actually have expressed that leaving the island's home is not an option. We already saw relocation before and, you know, it's, it, it's that disconnection and people would rather just live on their islands. Mm. We're a minority within a minority. And for such a long time, I think people have just forgotten like it's a different culture. And while I stand proudly with my brothers and sisters from all the different nations across this country, you know, to be able to amplify island people is a privilege and, you know, mm. have to use my privilege to yes. that <laughs> for sure but you know like I think with all of it what gives me the mana the love is that our old people continue and and communities continue to you know hold their head up high and lead and be able to continue to share with us with young people and with the next generation <laughs>
That was Tish King. You can follow her at Diary of a Green Girl and, of course, throw some support behind the amazing Seed Mob and the Our Island, Our Home campaign. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please like, subscribe, and leave a review for the pod on Apple Podcasts. It helps heaps, and you'll also go in the running to win an awesome prize pack, which I mentioned earlier. Until next time, stay hydrated and enjoy the great outdoors.